John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 572.MT2325, certificate number 29282. The Hayes Code. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket? Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Ken, you're on television. Sometimes. And um, I'm assuming that uh, at the Jeopardy production level, there are there's a code of what you can say, what you can do, how many times you can appear on camera with your fly undone. It doesn't really come up much on a quiz show. We're not really pushing the envelope like um, we're not trying to see how much of Dennis Franz's butt we can show (laughs) on any given episode of Jeopardy. But how often does someone say something or do you slip up and and uh, they they want to like do it over without the swears? (laughs) I've heard contestants uh, like drop some Mm F-bombs. They get excited. They get into the game. They're like. F you, Ken Jennings. It's more just like mum- muttering under their breath oh, when like, they uh, when they realize they got something wrong, damn. or when they they see a daily double they don't know. Sometimes there will be some mumbled swears, right? That would you know that the FCC would not love to have in prime time. So those are usually pretty easy to to you, mute. Drop the mic on that. You know, just like what we do when you when you swear or belch. Yeah, right. Or my show. chair squeaks, or I make <laughs> mouth sounds. <laughs> Um, but there's also, I think, probably uh, within the production and and you as the host and everyone on the show, a kind of um, understood and internalized sense of what passes on television and what what wouldn't pass. Sure. Like even in the game material, you're going to want to, um, I mean, people might be eating dinner. You don't want grisly depictions of uh, the ravages of cholera. Like we know. have here on this show. Oh, yeah. Here it's cholera every week. Yeah, never eat dinner listening to the omnibus. That's, that's a thing in the crossword puzzle, I think, that the Will Shorts didn't want, you know, enema or cancer, words like that to appear as clues. Great crossword puzzle. Enema clues, would though. be perfect. Yeah. But um, he just doesn't want you thinking about enemas while you're doing his crosswords. And that's fair enough. I don't want you thinking about enemas while you're consuming any of my art. Too late. 
<laughs> Do you think- Don't think about enemas, <laughs> listeners, right now. Stop. Nope. Stop thinking about enemas. <laughs> I can tell you're still thinking about enemas. The thing on a game show, by the way, is that um, there's an extra level of government scrutiny over the fairness of the game. Oh, because of the the, the potential for for uh, malfeasance. Sure. Like if the if the show were unfair, the show has to be exactly fair to all the contestants and you know transparent to the audience about how the game is being played. If anything, we're not above board in either of those arenas. There could actually be a congressional investigation again, like in the 50s when the quiz shows were given up the answers to the contestants. So, so there's independent auditors on scene. On who, set? Yeah. Like oh. everything from the, from the morning editorial meeting to the, to the end of the taping of the fifth show, somebody's always got to be there. Is it like the the guy from the EPA in Ghostbusters? Is is the government guy in a three piece suit? They're external lawyers from uh you know auditor the worst kind type of consultancy firms that exist only to so that an outside agency can can oversee compliance with regulatory stuff. And in practice, you ply that guy with gin and. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in practice, as long as the show is being consistent, yeah, you know, n- nobody's going to sue. Wheel of Fortune because uh, one of the puzzles was too hard or, 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 you know, somebody said their answer right on the buzzer or something. It's really just so that if the contestant says, hey, I, I, I feel like I wasn't treated well there, they have somebody who's kind of an ombudsman to appeal to. But as a student of Jeopardy, as a, as a historian of Jeopardy, have the, have the questions... Or answers. Uh, wh- or answers evolve. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, have they evolved over the course of the run of Jeopardy so that they're more, the uh, topics that are a little bit racier have come into play? Jokes that might, or puns that might have been considered uh, a little blue now allowed? I don't, I don't know about blue, but my impression is that, you know, hu- there's wider, there's more rain now for humor and maybe even a slightly edgy or contemporary kind of humor category titles will often be current memes of the day. Um, like your famous answer where you said a ho when the, when the correct answer was a rake would, I mean that made it onto TV and became a, a, a beloved internet meme, but that's unintentional. Yeah. But would Neither that have Jeopardy happened in nor 19, I were trying to in 1985, would they have, let that through or would that have been edited? My impression of the, like the sixties era Jeopardy show is that there wasn't, it was very straightforward. There actually was not a lot of humor or indeed any kind of cleverness or boundary pushing or topicality in any of the clues. I think you probably, I don't know. Do you have a sense that the clue writers knew that a hoe was a possible answer and they put that in there intentionally? I asked, I actually asked oh, you did. late, you know, decades later, and they didn't really appear to have any particular memory of it. It wasn't like an epical thing for them, you know, because they don't get sent the YouTube clip once a week like I do. Um, but they swore, no, no, I, we had no, it wasn't a trap to try to get somebody to say, oh, and when you see the amount of material they have to process, now that I see up close how they're trying to write and research and fact check, um, you know, 300 to 400 clues every single taping day. They're not uh, also in there planting secret, uh, secret bombs, secret agendas, and uh, and tricks and traps. I mean, there's 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 a lot of cleverness and innovation that goes into it, but 
it does not surprise me at all that no one would have said, hey, gays, guys, what if somebody says, what is a hoe here? Especially, it would have surprised you if they had said, hey, gays, gays. what if somebody says, there's a hoe here? Just a common term of affection we use behind the scenes sometimes. Um, You're a student of American cinema. You love film. This is the second thing I've been a student of in this show. I mean, I think of you as 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 a perpetual student. School of hard knocks, John. But you have a you have a home cinema, and you and your family watch movies together. And you've it seems like you've watched more movies than me. Let's call it that. We watch a lot of movies, old, new, American, foreign, streaming, DVD. Whoa, DVD! We watch it all. That kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite genre? Mine is DVD. DVD. I think we probably watch about a movie a day. It's kind of just a, it's a ritual. The dogs like it, if nothing else. Why? I think they, they get to sit on the couch and hang out with us. Oh, I, you know, we have a cat here at the house and anytime something comes on TV that has any kind of boom sound, she's like claws in the, in the, uh, in the ceiling. We were watching something with just distant thunder, power of the dog maybe, and just kind of, you know, a gentle rolling thunder in the subwoofer and the dog immediately heads under the, heads under the chair. Yeah. Uh, they're just not wired for that, but they what? don't, they don't recognize things on the screen, which is nice. My parents' dog. If oh, they, they don't, if they see a bird if or they something, see a horse or a bird or anything they recognize, you know, that dog will just kind of sit and kind of yelp at the yelp at the screen. And your dogs don't have that, that, um, uh, object that permanence ability to see <laughs> <laughs> our dog, our, our previous dog who passed away used to like, if a horse left the left part of the frame, it would go around the corner and try to see where it would come out. Oh. And when it didn't emerge from the side of the screen, would be very unhappy and confused. Is there something particular about dogs and horses, or is it just that there are a lot of horses in movies? We're mostly just watching... Did I not mention that we watch Westerns <laughs> mostly all Westerns. the time? Uh-huh. That's all we watch. Old Randolph <laughs> Scott Westerns. What's the most... What's the greatest number of movies you've watched in one day? Oh, I can't really do that. You can't sit and watch four movies in a day? No. You ever watched four movies? You've watched four hours of episodic television in a row, I bet. Oh, for sure. I probably watched four hours of a a movie, but it was, uh, you know, Return of the King. Right. Uh, I've definitely, as a younger man, I would go to a movie theater and watch something and then go into a different screen and watch something else. Um, But I I feel like I'm wasting... It's too indulgent. God's potential for me. Yeah, to watch three movies. If I just sit and watch all the Matrix movies in a row. Yeah. Well, for sure, if you watched those movies in a row, it would be wasting God's potential. <laughs> Maybe for not you. the first two hours, but <laughs> God is displeased with the uh, the riotous orgies in the second one. Yeah, tisk tisk. Well, do, do, can you sit and just watch a movie no. and feel like you are using your three score in ten years? Well, no, 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 no. I mean, I would, uh, I would sit and stack. Um, rusty needles all afternoon and feel like I'd done a I'd done a yeoman's job, but to watch two movies in a row just feels like, well, why not be a heroin addict? I'm a Roman emperor now, basically. Yeah. It's depraved. Yeah, exactly. Just feed me grapes. Don't watch two movies in a row. Folks. No, no. Although, or what although are you, Caligula? My daughter's mother is uh, one of those. She worked at at the Harvard Exit when she was in college, and and um, I miss the Harvard the Exit. Metro. And she would watch movies all day, five movies in a day, and just feel like it was it was part. It was like reading a novel all day. She looks at me, and when I when I when I say how can you do this, and she uh, you know she uh, she says you you read a read a novel all day, and I'm like yeah, of course you read a novel all day, but that's what that's what God intended. I definitely feel that distinction with with video games where there's something 
just generationally, there's something uplifting about reading a book for six hours and something yeah. soul sucking about shooting goblins for six hours. But I probably couldn't defend it if I had to. And honestly, I feel sinful reading during the day too. I mean, thinking about uh, the fact that it's possible that futurelings are goblins, I bet they would agree with you that there's something really immoral about that. That would be a very offensive game. They play a game where they're they're gobblers who just shoot gamers. (laughs) They're gobblers. I love it. They're the gamer gobblers. I'm going to start calling futurelings gobblers. No, I'm not. I'm going to forget it entirely in, in 15 minutes. Well, in the United States... Um, there is a lot of a, a sense of kind of the golden age of cinema being one that was also very constrained. The morality of the mid-century, which we think of kind of broadly as being a time when there was uh, a lot of sort of anti-sex morality, um, a, a, a sort of national code almost that was moralistic and narrow-minded. A really strict idea of what you could show on screen. It was a thing that, that extended, I think, across the culture, so that the, the counterculture of the late 60s and 70s really uh, positioned itself as an antidote to that repressed 50s morality. Finally, some freedom. We can throw off the shackles of... And you can see, I mean, you can even see a gap, particularly in the movies. You know, if you, if you read a hit novel of the 40s or 50s or 60s, which has some titillating passages if you're reading From Here to Eternity right. or, or Peyton Place or something. And then Tropic you, of Capricorn. And then you see the movie of the same. Oh, you right. know, Because these were best-selling novels. So, of course, they get adapted. But, you know, now the, you know, the villain has to get what's coming to him. Yeah. And the heroine can't descend into prostitution. Maybe her husband died in the war instead. Or maybe she's a dance hall girl. And... Uh, you know, the whole plot has to be changed just because the movies had a different set of what acceptable American life was than publishing. And where do you think, as someone who um, is a student of American culture, where do you think that, I mean, that we we know, and this, this episode is, is called The Hayes Code, and we know it, there was an actual code a written code a production code and an enforced code mm. but what do you think the where where is your sense of where that code came from i mean i know enough to know that you know today turner classic movies will like kind of in an attempt to hold the eyeballs of a younger audience for whom black and white movie is just anathema i think uh, shea serrano recently came out with a book about classic movies and he just says at the beginning look like nothing here older than jaws i'm not a weirdo you know, <laughs> right. like, like, like he's basically saying, you know, Alfred Hitchcock doesn't exist. Billy Wilder doesn't exist. Who could watch Casablanca or Gone with the Wind today? Wizard of Oz. Come on. We, uh, we tried to watch A Wonderful Life around Christmas time and there was only the colorized version. Boo. I didn't, uh, we couldn't even find the black and white version. They should have Pottersville in color and, and Bedford Falls in black and white, like Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think in the, in the face of that, a culture where people think of even like, 70s movies is hopelessly dated and unwatchably paced and constructed. Turner Classic Movies, for example, goes to some lengths to show pre-code movies. So I've seen a lot of these kind of Hollywood movies that just happened to predate the strictures of the production code. And it's really eye-opening because it's all the the tropes and sets you expect from a, you know, a 1940s Claudette Colbert movie, except like I just saw her nipple. 
you know, or, or the characters are, you know, it's a horror movie and the characters are openly talking about Satanism or necrophilia, or there's some incest theme that never would have been allowed, or the character's actually a prostitute and says so, or the couple that's in love is not married and doesn't play, you know, all these things that you just assume never happen in black and white movies they were commonplace in the early thirties before whatever happened happened. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, one of the first, one of the first films, silent films, um, was a film called The Kiss in, uh, in the late 19th century. And it was just a short, you know, and by short, I mean 30 second long little. I don't have that kind of. <laughs> it was black and white. Anymore. So pretty boring. What? But it's just a, uh, it's just a film. It's a little film. Uh, starring Mary Irwin, who was a sort of popular uh, vaudeville singer. Guarantee she had big, kind of weird, vacant eyes, well, like, she, like all the beautiful women of that time. If you look at uh, The Kiss, I mean, it's a very, there, you would not, by contemporary standards, think of her as a sex pot. Yeah, if you think sex, uh, you know, uh, standards of beauty and sexiness are are innate and not culturally related, just watch any silent movie and see who... See who Buster Keaton or Rudolph Valentino is romancing. They they will be they would be the weirdest looking girl in your high school class in 1920. That was the standard of beauty. Well, in 1896, uh, this little film, this little 30 second uh, exploration of what was a kiss at the time. What well, is it? Is it hot? Well, I mean, you have to get past the fact that he has a big handlebar mustache and and. I'm into this already. But what they what they do for the for the for this thirty seconds is their faces are pressed together, like you would if you were you know very if you were in the middle of kissing somebody and then stopped to talk. Although <laughs> it's a little bit it's strange because they're both kind of facing the camera, but their cheeks are pressed together, right. and they're talking with their lips very close to one another. He's talking to her, and she's kind of responding. They are talking. They are talking, but their faces are mashed together, and um, and they're kind of laughing and having a little moment, and then at the very end of the of the clip, he he turns her face to him, and and they kiss like 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 multiple small, very small, fast little, and the intimacy of their two faces being kind of pushed you know, like really smushed as they sit and chat for 15 seconds is a little bit like, what is going on here? But then the kiss is extremely chaste, you know, like just lips sort of barely touching. But if they're facing out, doesn't it seem like they're playing to the camera? Like you don't really get a sense of any kind of fly on the wall intimacy, right? I mean, as a, as a dedicated kisser, I, I, as a scholar of kissing, as a student of kissing, John, it's very, uh, the whole thing is just like I'm. I'm not sure what am I looking at, right? But it scandalized audiences at the time. Oh, really? Scandalized. Which them. part? The fact that something as private as a kiss would be in a movie at all. That and also just the the what what apparently by the standards of the time was a raunchy kiss. The I mean I don't know what what normal kisses would were. A, would a single peck have been okay? But the that. But I but I think I think just the. As they're talking, you know, their lips are, if not touching, you know, very, very close to one another. And it was just a, it was just 
an intimacy. They were actors. They weren't married. This wasn't a depiction of <gasps> a, married. of a marriage bed or something. And 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 even that would have probably been scandalous. But by the 1920s and by the, um, you know the at the post post World War One kind of roaring affluent and um, expansive time, right? The as silent movies became a sort of predominant form of entertainment, they did become racier and racier. And a lot of that was that the the New York stage was a place where, you know, the values of New York City and the progressivism of New York City meant that that theater productions there were we're pushing the envelope. But if you went to Romeo and Juliet in, in Buffalo or Cincinnati, maybe they, they would be a little, it would have been very edgy different. for them to kiss. It would have been, it would have been very different. And the States, um, had the States had and enforced their own moral codes. Uh, there were of, there were 37 States that had, that had specified, you know, like, um, Here's what can happen on the stage. Here's here's what can happen on the stage and on film in our state. And Kansas was very different from New York or California. But those were New York and California were where the film industry was taking its narratives and its actors. And so you had a period where the the films were being made according to the moral standards of a culture that was coming out of Kind of racy post vaudeville theater. Isn't there nothing different about this today? Don't we still hear complaints about those? Yeah, those left wing liberals in Hollyweird enforcing their their terrible morals on the rest of the country. That's absolutely true, and and uh, I don't think our morals, our Hollyweird morals now, are e- even as as raunchy as they were in 1925. But there started to be a lot of. Um, hullabaloo in the twenties about this and states sort of started to enforce their own moral codes on what could be broadcast in theaters in those local states. It would be a nightmare if you were actually producing anything in those days because you'd make a movie and then you'd find out that the Archbishop of Chicago wouldn't let it be seen there. And the, and the, the, the possibility that those, uh, that those films would have to have separate edits to play in separate states. Kansas remix. Really, really uh, scared Hollywood to death because, you know, it would be it'd be incredibly expensive and incredibly impossible to cater edits to all of the different states. And very early in the 20s, um, there were a lot of scandals around Hollywood that made it the kind of, well, the tabloid uh, exemplar of what would have been moral decay, like an intolerable kind of decadent and debauched culture that was in all the, that was in all the lower, you know, the broadsheet newspapers. I feel like maybe I don't want this to be a, a hot or a regressive take, but I feel like often when you, in hindsight, when you read about these kind of situations, you find out that that is exactly the case. And those people were trying to put their um, fringe political ideas or their, outrageous amor- immoral behavior into their into their work right like hollywood actually was pretty debauched at the time i mean everybody was shocked by mary astor's diary of all her sexual escapades but the fact is she was one of the biggest stars in hollywood and she was keeping a diary of all her crazy 
sexual escapades, and I'm sure that's wasn't uncommon. And there was cocaine addiction and and you know uh, heroin addiction that that rivaled the cocaine and heroin addiction of the of seventies cinema, and a lot of sex. This was at a time before central casting when casting decisions were often made. Um, people that wanted to be extras in films would just show up outside the gates of the major studios. And as directors and producers were entering the studio in the morning, they would kind of look out the window of their, uh, of their limousine and go that one and that one. And so some creep with a, with a couch. Yeah. And so the, the exploitation that happened of people trying to get into Hollywood, you know, it, it, um, it would even make the scumbags of recent memory blanch at how, or at least it would be nothing new. These kind of well, and I think I think it was it was a much less controlled time, and we think of you know we think of it uh, we think of pre nineteen fifties as being a time when people had, were very chaste, but it was maybe a more sexually sexually liberated time even than than the sixties and seventies when we think of people it, being. It does seem like one sexy. difference might be you know somebody awful like Harvey Weinstein actually was one of the most powerful men in Hollywood and ran one of the powerful studios and he could literally end begin or end careers. Um, but I guess back in the twenties, it was just and, anybody in the casting process had that same, right. Anybody that had, a, had a key to the door. Yeah. Right. Um, and so this contributed to all of that, but, uh, but in 1922 in particular, there were a couple of high profile murders that put the debauchery in a different light, that it wasn't just that people were doing cocaine and having illicit sex, but it, was, it, had, be, it had descended into a kind of Dante-esque uh, culture out West. And one of them was the sort of famous murder of, uh, of Virginia Rapp by Fatty, Fatty Arbuckle. Arbuckle and the subsequent trial of Fatty Arbuckle, which you know, brought all of these lurid accusations and implicated all these Hollywood actors and actresses. And, and Arbuckle got a raw deal, right? I mean, well, at the end of the trial, kind of in an unprecedented way, the jury actually apologized to Fatty Arbuckle, uh, and kind of wrote together as a jury, this statement that there was absolutely zero evidence that Fatty Arbuckle had committed any crime but the headlines had already um, yeah, killed his it, career. Yeah, it ruined his career, and it was, uh, you know, and to this day, I think there are people that would denounce him, just at, on the strength of the accusation. That's all people remember about him. But uh, there was also another high-profile murder of, a, of a, uh, a director by the name of William Desmond Taylor. Right. The Desmond then, you know, kind of being uh, immortalized in, in Sunset Boulevard is named after this character and his life story would be its own omnibus entry and his murder, a, like a hilarious sort of, uh, well, comedy of errors. Hilarious if you're not him, I guess. Uh, he was, he, he died and his body was found by his valet. Uh, and it was, you know, the word kind of got out in the neighborhood and everybody in the neighborhood crowded into his apartment at some point, someone stepped forward out of the crowd, examined his, he said, I'm a doctor, examined his body and said, he died of a, of a stomach hemorrhage and then disappeared and nobody ever saw him again. And then the cops rolled his body over and he had a bullet hole in the back. 
That's like, the killer, well, I think. It was the bullet hole, maybe. That's how, not- I, that's how I try to cover up my crimes. I, I go to the crime scene and I pretend to examine the victim and say, he wasn't murdered. I didn't do it. <laughs> and then I sneak away. There was, there was an eyewitness that saw someone uh, that she described as um, basically the personification of a burglar. But she, but, uh, but she thought the, that it was a woman in a costume, <laughs> including like white face or something, you know, like yeah. to make herself look like a man. Uh, a, there, were, there were five or six plausible like suspects in the crime, including, his, including Taylor's second valet, a, a man by the name of Henry Peavy, who um, was described in the press at the time as wearing a lot of flashy golf outfits even though he didn't own golf clubs, which made him suspect. You should go to jail for that alone. You had all these flashy golf outfits. He was a black guy and uh, a female reporter for a Los Angeles paper thought that she could get him to confess the crime. She was convinced he was guilty. Yeah. Uh, tried to get him to confess the crime because she had seen in films that black people were scared of ghosts. <laughs> That that was a thing she'd seen enough in films that she was convinced that this was a this was a truism. See, uh, media stereotyping does have real life harms. This, and, this poor guy had to suffer a fake haunting because of yeah. because of racist Amos and Andy type haunted house movies. So she set up a situation where she put a guy in a ghost costume <laughs> in a sheet and took him took PV to the graveyard and said, you know, uh, and and uh, she said, you know, show me his grave. PV walks her out to the grave in Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and her accomplice jumps up from behind the gravestone in a in a sheet and goes, "Ooh, it's me, the ghost of Taylor. Confess." Did it work? And, well, and so PV cracks up. Come on, man. Not the least of which because Taylor had a British accent, <laughs> and this guy had a like a Chicago gangster accent. Like, we hey, we don't know how ghosts talk. confess. Oh, like so he's sure we take our accents with us when we die. Yeah. Okay. No, no. Everyone in everyone in heaven talks like Al Capone. Yeah, it's all a big uh, De Bears sketch. It's up there. right there in the Bible. Longtime omnibus listeners are familiar with the virtues of native personal hygiene products. Yeah, this is the aluminum-free deodorant and body washes that uh, that we've been uh, pitching here on Omnibus for many moons. They have versions for sensitive skin. They have plastic-free versions. No uh, sulfates, no parabens. There are some with no scents, but if you love the scents, their body wash is available in Eight cents, and there's a bunch of new scents to kick off the new year. That's the wonderful thing about them. They keep coming up with new seasonal scents, so you never get, they never get old. Native has partnered with Baked by Melissa with a collection of new scents inspired by cupcakes. Hello. Have you ever been putting on deodorant or body wash and thought, I wish it smelled like cupcakes in here right now. No, but I love someone who smells like cupcakes. I'll sidle right up to them, but not in a weird way. Yeah, there's no downside to smelling like cupcakes. So this is these are the new limited edition scents for January. Why, John, do you not smell like tie-dye vanilla cupcakes? Mm-mm, or mint cookie cupcake, Ooh. fresh peach cupcake? Ginger lemonade cupcake. Is that even a real cupcake? I'm not sure. I don't know, I've but I kind of want my pits to smell like it. <laughs> never had a fresh peach cupcake either. Look, a lot of you are probably buying grocery store cupcakes and rubbing them under your arms if you want to smell like that. And now... You don't have to. This year, up your personal hygiene routine with Native. 
Go to nativedeo.com slash omnibus. That's nativedeo.com slash omnibus. And use the promo code omnibus at checkout for 20% off your first Whoa. order. Yeah, that's right. Nativedeo.com slash omnibus, or just use promo code omnibus when you check out, and you'll get 20% off your first order. They're introducing native... Baked by Melissa, a limited edition collection created to make every day a little sweeter. Mm. It's a partnership with uh, the delicious creations of female founder Melissa Ben Ishe with native simple yet effective formulations to surprise and delight consumers with every wash and swipe. I love to be surprised when I wash and swipe. But you, do you know what's even better, John? Go on. When I can be surprised and delighted with every wash and every swipe. That's nativedeo.com slash omnibus. Use promo code omnibus. These murders became uh, kind of nationwide scandals. And there were sensational crimes elsewhere, but yeah. Hollywood already had this um, kind of tabloid industry covering your favorite stars. So it was just a it was just a machine to create outrage about this kind of stuff, right? Right, and and but it did affect it 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 did threaten Hollywood in the sense that this the the outrage around these murders and around all this this kind of sexual licentiousness um, became a political issue, a football political football in its time, and senators and congressmen were crying out for censorship. All these different state legislatures were threatening. It's because it was a fairly new medium. It's the same reason video games can be threatened today by do they cause violence kind right, of Or comic books in their time. Exactly. Yeah. It's the, it doesn't have a lot of protection from the, you know, today, nobody ever responded to the Harvey Weinstein stuff by saying, well, I'm not going to go to a movie again. I think there should be congressional hearings on movies I mean, it would just be, it would be limited to the bad actors. But, right. But back then, like the whole, the whole endeavor was in jeopardy, right? Well, and uh, we saw it with the PMRC in the 80s or in the 90s, um, yeah. the idea that rap lyrics or, you know, licentious rock music was, was causing kids to go die in Dungeons and Dragons tunnels, right? The, the new form is the scary one. Um, so... The motion picture industry recognized that they needed to they needed to figure out a way to to counter this movement toward censorship and it and it reflected outrage, but also it was like all political uh footballs it was there was a lot of cynical sort of politic politics involved who can benefit by this yeah and so the motion picture association reached out to a man named William Hayes, who was uh, the postmaster general at the time. Who would you trust more than the postmaster general? He had, he was, uh, he had played an instrumental role in getting Warren G. Harding elected president. He was the, but don't hold that against him. He was the chairman of the Republican national committee before that. And, uh, actually played a not insignificant role in the teapot dome stand, uh, scandal, which I've also threatened to make an omnibus entry. He doesn't seem like a great arbiter of morality so far. No, but he's a Presbyterian deacon uh. and because he's a Republican and, uh, and a conservative, um, he looks dour and humorless. He's dour and humorless. If that helps. Although, although not personally humorless, but the motion picture industry uh, enlists him to put a kind of conservative face on 
industry self-censorship and reform. It's weird that he's not a divisive political figure, or if he is, the, 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 uh, the calculus is people already assume we are dangerous radicals in some respect. Let's get this, um, let's get this partisan Republican face to make it, to give the impression of balance. And, and, and that's what it is. And he spends the first part of the 1920s just kind of doing a tour, uh, and assuaging the, the more hysterical criticisms of Hollywood. He says, we're going to, don't worry about this. We're going to hang, handle it internally. And he, uh, he puts together by the mid 1920s, a list of a kind of list of guidelines that Hollywood would, that Hollywood adopt voluntarily in order to uh, bring the industry into conformance with the morality of the, of America at the time. And nobody wants this to be official government imposed censorship. That seems un-American, but if the studios themselves say we want to only have films like this and that, then there's no specter of tyranny. And a lot of the moral, uh, a lot of the moral outrage is coming from the Catholic community in the United States. You know, this was, a, this was before a time when the American Baptist church or um, Protestant churches had national kind of... Uh, Political clout. Yeah, clout. Whereas the, whereas the Catholics had a, a united and institutional kind of voice... And they were already using that, right? Didn't they have a League of Decency telling you these were the books not to read? And they did, and the, and the the Catholic morality, uh, you know, the overarching one was that media in general should not lead susceptible or vulnerable people down a path where criminality was glamorized, right? And so it was actually a a Jesuit priest by the name of Father Daniel Lord, in conjunction with a with a kind of American, uh, like a prominent American Catholic named Martin Quigley, who independently wrote a list, you know, a, a kind of manifesto of propriety that they felt Hollywood films should follow. And the emphasis really is on not glamorizing crime. You'd think the low hanging fruit would be like, you know, no, no cleavage nothing to nothing to angry up the humors well the list and and william hayes was excited about these two kind of bringing him this list because he was ad hoc trying to put out fires now he's got some religious authority some scholars right and he and he called the list his list of the don'ts and the be carefuls (laughs) and the don'ts were uh, a list of of 11 don'ts uh, profanity being the first don't, no profanity, including no use of the words God, Lord, Jesus, Jesus Christ, or hell, SOB. You want to say SOB? I assume you could say things like God or Lord if you were you if know, you, if making it, a movie about uh, Jesus's life. Yeah, but not, not use them as profanity. But if anybody hits their thumb with a hammer, they can't say them. Including not saying God, you know, like not. One, not versions of it that... It's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't say it. But yeah, maybe even minced oaths would have been... Uh, mm-hmm. I know that um, there's some... Oh, I think it's the Music Man. They say Geely Cly on Broadway, which is a minced oath for Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. And in the movie, it had to be changed to Great Honk or something like that that doesn't have any hidden... Because you know how many of those little seemingly clean 
Jiminy Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. Or uh, even like Zounds is short for God's Wounds and, you know, there's there's stuff like that. Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers Creepers is, is probably Jesus yeah, Christ, right? JC. Don't say anything with the initials JC. No. Just kidding. Oh, wait. That's, that's okay. okay. You're allowed. Uh, so no nudity, of course, but not even nudity in silhouette. That's something you sometimes see in these pre-code movies is Gene Harlow will like go behind a screen to change and you're like, hello. Yeah, that's right. That shouldn't be allowed in black and white. Too sexy. That's one of the don'ts. Uh, no drugs, obviously. No, uh, no inference of perversion. So there was Is this nev- code for homosexuality? That's the thing. There was never in the code any reference to homosexuality. But the but the presumption probably even to reference it would be right to even say it in the list. But to but it was it was just presumed that it was included under perversion. Uh, but also perversion included any. Well, sure. You know, I mean, torture or some of those early Karloff movies, you know, are just loving the overtones of bestiality and right. necrophilia and whatever, whatever they could get away with. Yeah. Uh, another thing prohibited was white slavery and white slavery was a real, like, uh, that was a trope, right? It was a trope. And, and it was a thing in the late 19th century and early 20th century that really, especially in England, got people, um, you know, uh, made ladies faint. The idea that white girls would be... It's always a girl, so there's yeah. a sexy side to it. And, you know, and, and young girls yeah. would be trafficked to Arab harem And havers. forced to do terrible things yeah. with people do, of other... I can hardly, I can hardly think about it. But <laughs> mopping yeah. my forehead. Do snake dancing and whatnot. Right. And that goes along with the next, uh, the next thing, which is miscegenation. And initially, miscegenation on the list was you know, kind of broadly any two races mixing. But over time, it really narrowed down its focus so that it was just black and white relations. And pretty much probably white women and black men is what yeah. would have scared people. Right. And so, you know, strictly off limits. And it became, you know, more and more focused. Um, like it, it turned out that uh, that Asians and Arabs, um, that the miscegenation restrictions didn't apply over time. Uh, and then any reference to venereal disease, no reference to or scenes of childbirth, even in silhouette, you could, I mean, you see it in Gone with the Wind, you could take the camera and do the, like, the kind of pan off screen. Just so you, curtains. yeah, you, you implied, you know, it's from here to eternity, kind of like the implication of, right. of the thing without any depiction of it. Um, and then crucially... No ridicule of the clergy. <laughs> I like how this list by the clergy has a very specific carve out. And, the, and in particular, no depiction of the clergy in any, uh, like no villain can yeah, also like, be. There's no hypocrisy. Like right. all, all church people have to be. Have to be the hero or good. Yeah. And no willful offense to any other nation, race, or creed. And this interestingly was in response to, um, there was a kind of, as other nations developed their own cinema, there was a, a, the threat of embargo of American cinema if their, if their country was represented or misrepresented as 
backward or evil. Well, this happens today. Yeah. China can be the bad guy in a movie replacing Russia until China is one of the biggest film markets. And now it's got to be a shadowy consortium or North Korea or, you know, there's no country that's safe to use as a bad guy. That's right. There was a, there, I just read an article the other day that Ukraine protested that on an American television show, a Ukrainian girl was was kind of the figure of ridicule or a, or the not the bad girl, but just a kind of, you know, like a low character. You don't want to piss off the UDL, man. No. Um, so anyway, uh, William Hayes now has this code and he's trying to apply it, but it's still a voluntary, uh, it, it, like a list of suggestions. And, you know, the be carefuls are all a little bit more, fuzzy but like don't d- don't misuse the flag don't ever point a gun at the screen you know like don't have an actor point a gun at the camera cuz that will scare oh it's scary audience. yeah um never show uh depictions of the commission of a crime like robbery or safe cracking or train robbery in a way that might too many details yeah that might give someone a little bit of insight into how to pull off a train robbery. That's an ongoing concern. Like uh, Breaking Bad famously did not show the right way, the right recipe for meth, you know? And I think it's for the same reason. They don't want to show people here, you know, here's how you crack into a, here's how you hack into a computer. Here's how you make an explosive. You know, often ingredients will be fictionalized or slightly changed just to avoid copycat crime. And I think the biggest one of those that had the most lasting influence was that there should be no depiction of, there should be no film sympathy for the criminal. Like criminality should never be depicted as the hero should never be a criminal and there should never be drug use portrayed sympathetically. Like It's a live issue because... Uh, you know, we're at the height of the influence of the gangster right. on the American scene. People were dying to make, and it's hard to make movies where, I mean, John Milton found when he's writing Paradise Lost that Lucifer is just more interesting than the angels because mm-hmm. he's got a real arc. And that's true in Scarface and Cagney movies as well. So all these movies had to have some stapled on um, comeuppance. Right. For the villain, so that they could say, hey, look, uh, we're not glamorizing this. Look what happens at the end. The guy goes to the chair. The guy's wife, you know, leaves him or, you know, whatever it is. And a lot of this is is underpinned by the fact that back in 1915, the Supreme Court, you know, in the very early days of movies, the Supreme Court in a in a case unanimously decided that free speech did not apply to film. Whoa. There was no First Amendment protection. Which I assume publishing would have enjoyed, for example. Loved. But not film. Right. Oh, yeah. Publi- publishing did enjoy and, and public, you know, like production of, of public speechifying, you know, like there, there, was, there was plenty of precedent, but the Supreme Court, and this is a unanimous decision. Wow. Uh, because it's the new art form and yeah ruled that it did not apply to film you you could not appeal to first amendment when, and when did that go away case law wise like so, so the supreme court unanimously determined that that motion pictures did have 
protection under the First Amendment in the 1950s, early 50s. Okay. And so they reversed the, that decision after, as you say, the new art form had become the universal art form. They realized like, oh, that's not really, you can't really make that argument. But during the 1930s and 40s, film recognized that they that this vulnerability meant that um, it jeopardized their whole their whole industry. Yeah. And the the kind of ad hoc, you know, we're going to try and and bring every film into compliance that that predominated through the 30s or the early 30s, first half of the 30s, really wasn't working cuz film directors wanted to push those boundaries. You had a lot of and and because of the depression there was a real, a real kind of energy around bringing people. People had limited f- money to spend on movies, and trying to get people, trying to get butts in seats. There was uh, a lot of pressure to put sexy stories and and gangster films and and got to give people what they want. Yeah, get get people in there, and so it wasn't until 1934. That there was a recognition that this needed to be the, the 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 movie industry needed to impose a code and enforce it industry wide voluntarily because if it if if they couldn't manage their own house they were going to get um, legislation passed so the early, against them the early thirties when you see these so called pre code movies you know Gene Harlow and Barbara Stanwyck getting up to stuff you could never get up to in the forties. These were all still post-production code movies, but it just wasn't being, or, you know, they're post-Will Hayes movies, but they're not, it's not being enforced. Yeah, Will Hayes is running around trying to, m- more than try to, trying to censor the movies, trying to uh, appease the, the legislators. Yeah. Um, but it was, but there, there was a code in place. It wasn't until 1934 that the code became a kind of mandatory code. And it was governed by this, sort of Catholic presumption that evil is wrong and good is right. And well, evil is wrong and good is right. It's in the name. Yeah. And art, art can be morally evil in its effects. And that is reckless behavior. And there doesn't, in some of these rules, there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for, well, of course we do this, but it's only the villain doing it. I mean, it really creates a, a kind of a world where the movies have to be unlike real life and they can't touch upon these subjects at all. Right. Uh, that would imply some kind of endorsement of them, uh, which is not true of fiction. You know, not the writer does not uh, does not agree with every credo espoused by her characters. Or uh, well, and there was within the code and within the the conversation at the time a recognition that mature audiences could see these things depicted and not be unduly influenced, but there was no rating system. So every mm. movie, it's a lowest common denominator problem. Every movie had to conform to a, uh, a standard that would allow a child. What you want your eight year old to see. Or as they, as they said in the language of the time, a moron uh, should be able to go to the movie and not come out with a feeling that being a, a safe cracker and a prostitute was something that maybe was achievable for them. And moron would have been a technical term yeah, for a, right. a low IQ person, you know, who will go to the movies and, and become a safe cracker and become a safe cracker. In 1934, a man by the name of Joseph Breen, um, a Catholic was hired to be the, uh, the enforcer of the code. And Breen was, uh, you know, a kind of moralizing figure who really 
lowered the boom on Hollywood. Hollywood who, Hollywood that was, um, that was voluntarily kind of submitting to his, uh, his energy. And Breen came out to Hollywood and was scandalized by the culture itself there. And so felt a real vigor about enforcing this code, not only on the films, but on Hollywood uh, total. On those reprobates. Yeah. And this, this began the era, not only of um, removing this kind of stuff, this, this licentiousness from the films themselves, but also from the, the way the actors behaved in their private lives. Um, And Breen was also an anti-Semite. And so, and there's speculation. I, I hesitate because there's speculation about whether or not he was an anti-Semite all along or whether his being scandalized by Hollywood, then he made the, the spurious that, yeah. uh, connection that Hollywood was a, a, a Jewish business. And so his anti-Semitism then, you know, kind of redoubled his feeling that, that there needed to be a, a, a a Catholic sensibility that, that replaced or suppressed the Jewish sensibility that he felt was that predominated in the morals around Hollywood. Wow. And he was doing it just like Goebbels, I guess. Yeah. And well, and so look at this degenerate art, you wink, wink. And what he, what he, uh, one of the, the codes that he really enforced was this idea that Hollywood could not make films that, depicted other nations or other cultures in a bad light. And so when you think about the, the movies that Hollywood produced in the 1930s, there is a, a, a dearth, a, a complete absence of films commenting on the rise of Nazism yeah. and, uh, and fascism in Europe. And that was because Breen was adamant that we not offend the German people by characterizing them as Nazis. Even after September 1939, but before America was in the war, you get all these movies made where, you know, the turmoil and the intrigue in Europe is a huge MacGuffin in the movie, but no one actually says who the dictators involved are. You know, nobody names names. And Breen had all this uh, overt suspicion that uh, the Jews in Hollywood were going to try and introduce these plot lines into films. Wouldn't that be awful if there were anti-Nazi plot lines? <laughs> I know. The funny thing is all the movies are still implicitly anti-Nazi, you know, Joel McRae and foreign correspondent or whatever. He's going up against shadowy European, central European dictatorships. But I guess maybe there's just enough plausibility to think, well, maybe he means Russia. Yeah. Well, and, and, um, and to the, to the, this lay audience that was supposedly incapable of making these determinations. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the film directors, when they cast back into this era, they felt like the restrictions of the code kind of uh, intensified their creativity. The 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 uh, the restrictions made them de- developed a Hollywood uh, like subtext. I and, do like strictures. Yeah, when I'm writing, you I know, I like it. something arbitrary that I have to stick to. Um, and it does make you come up with surprising solutions that would not be your first impulse or your easy solution. But I don't know if that goes for things as broad as, you know, you can't depict crime, for example. 
Yeah, human and, sexuality doesn't exist. Other nations' politics doesn't exist. Well, I mean, but this is when we we, th- we think back to these films. I mean, there's some of the great films sure. uh, that are that were produced under these restrictions. The first reference to Hitler in uh, Hollywood film wasn't until 1940, and it's positive. It was no, I'm just no. kidding. It's Chaplin, right? And no, it was a Three Stooges kind of throwaway <laughs> line, and then Chaplin's The Dictator uh, comes out also in 1940. And that is partly a result of Pope Pius XI, who famously not much of an anti-Nazi crusader, right? But he did He's not not a Nazi. <laughs> he did come out with a with a uh, encyclical or or a, a papal pronouncement in thirty eight that anti-Semitism was uh, incongruent with Catholicism, and that gave the studio some cover. Yeah, and that and so uh, Breen then made a public statement that oh. Hollywood was no longer going to um, tolerate anti-Semitism. Of course, Hollywood wasn't, it wasn't Hollywood that was anti-Semitic. Right. <laughs> it was Joseph Breen. <laughs> far, far from the truth. <laughs> but, you know, in the, in, a quote from the time said that Breen, you know, that, that the Hayes Code uh, represented a Jewish business selling Catholic theology to Protestant America. <laughs> Everybody does what they're best at. Uh, so it wasn't until the 1950s. So throughout the war, the Hays Code still applied. Um, although, you know, obviously, and uh, we didn't, we were making a lot of movies about defeating Nazis and, and defeating the Japanese during that time. But still no depictions, you know, no sure. depictions of crime paying and no slander of the church. Not and a lot of boundary no pushing at all well into the... Late 50s, early 60s. Well, it was Preminger who uh, really hated the strictures of the code and Howard Hughes, who kept pushing, um, you know, kept kind of uh, coming up with scripts that... Just moving the Overton window a little bit. Yeah, and and the code, you know, Breen pushed back. It was, uh, the mid-50s was a time when there was... Uh, that that uh, occasionally a film would come out and would not have the the stamp of approval of the Motion Picture Association, and the the then they would take the risk and the film would come out and sometimes you know do a booming business. Um, so it was you know again still a within Hollywood a kind of if not if not entirely voluntary it was still a thing that directors wanted to. Uh, push against, right? I mean, if you think about Casablanca, the whole story of Casablanca hinges on extramarital sex, and um, and a lot of that is it, it, it's, it's broadly implied instead yeah, of explicitly named. It's coded, but it's and she still, stays with Ilsa stays with her husband. It's still very there, you know, and and pushing the boundaries of the code. Those fifties movies, like it seems like a lot of the pushing of the code comes from a high-minded place. Like I'm thinking of those Preminger movies, like The Moon Is Blue or Anatomy of a Murder. Like the point of Anatomy of a Murder is, you know, we must be frank in showing these yes. social ills. You know, this, the, the you know the rape of this young woman. Of course, it's you know maybe the the description will be graphic, but you know it's important that we defend our young people against this kind of crime and so forth. Yeah, the 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 moral bottom line is the same. The 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 e- evil cannot win. Yeah. It's not until the mid 60s as you kind of sense that 
the code really started to crumble. And partly it was a result of television providing the the viewing audience with plenty to look at. Plenty of all ages content. And and television also had a code um, that was even stricter than the film code. Comic books. Yeah, didn't Jack, didn't Jack Parr get fired for saying the word toilet or something? Yeah, there was all, all that yeah. kind of stuff. You couldn't say uh, or do all these, what we would think now of as tame things. You could even say toilet on Jeopardy. Lucy, uh, Lucille Ball famously was not allowed to use the word pregnant, even though you know, and, even though she was pregnant. And, and, and it wasn't clear whether the sponsors would allow that. I mean, people, uh, married couples slept in separate beds all the way through the Cosby show. Um, but in, uh, in the movie, The Pawn Broker, which was the first Holocaust movie, there Again, were, a high-minded place. Yeah, like. but there were bare breasts shown on screen, and that was the first, the first time since the 1920s that you know an exposed female breast was shown. It's so interesting that that's the carve out because yeah. I remember when Schindler's List showed on network TV for the first time, there was a lot of this movie has nudity, yes, but it's non-sexual nudity, and what an important you know what an important you know the the idea that there could be something loftier than the letter of the of the production code law, right? And often it becomes, what, what could you appeal to that's less, you know, that's more of a moral certainty than we are against the Holocaust? Yeah, exactly. It was, it was a dramatization that was necessary for, uh, to show the, the true horror. What, you want us to whitewash Nazism? You know, yeah. surely that's not what the code would have intended. But it was two years later, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, where the first kind of raunchy talk and, um, you know, at there were still words excised from who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but they let hump in and it was, you know, they say hump the hostess. Yeah. It was a little blue. Um, and so, but, but during the mid sixties now we were actually, it was, it was partly an antitrust decision. The, um, the vertical integration of the film industry where the studios controlled the theaters had been busted up by uh, by trust busting cases, and so now movie theaters were free to show films from all over, and there was a boon of foreign cinema, and you know, yeah, those the production code was not being observed in Sweden and Italy. Yeah, exactly, and so these films had all of this kind of uh, really uh, sexy stuff in them and do you, do you remember this mid-century idea that a swedish film was some oh, kind of yeah. i mean it was a lot of them were ingmar bergman existential art films but you, but they you were, saw someone's underwear yeah they were shown in in like sleazy new york houses because it's swedish film and and so during the late 60s hollywood itself just started to rebel completely against the hayes code it ended up that it was in tatters and in 1968 just a couple of months after I was born. So I lived... You taking credit for it? I lived for two months, Ken, in a in a Hayes Code era. What do you remember about that time? <laughs> Did you see Oliver? You know, a lot of things were going down. But in 1968, they the Motion Picture Association switched over to the rating system, which was a brand new idea that, that kind of uh, harkened back to the the 30s and the and the sense that there was an audience that had the discernment to watch criminals succeed that could handle that without becoming criminals themselves and the new rating system which we know in our time um g movies being rated for everybody at the time m, m movies yeah. 
which then evolved into PG. Very quickly. I wonder, I wonder if the optics were bad, like ma- mature. What's mature? Yeah. Um, in 1968, it was mature. PG is specifically, you could bring your kids, but uh, the parents should be the ones monitoring. Well, that. in 1970, it switched to GP. Yeah. And in 1972, it became PG. So parental guidance. Then there were R movies. But then uh, what's funny about parental guidance is in 1984, there was a lot of outcry about how Gremlins was super violent and, and scary. And Temple of Doom, I think. P- and, movies that were nominally for the family, but were yeah, there was, too intense for Think kids. about it. Temple of Doom, they go down into that scary cave there's, on that. There's all the bugs thrill and the blood. So that, um, that resolved to PG-13. You had to have parental, you had to have parental guidance to the age of 13, after which you can watch movies about bugs. And then in, uh, in 1990, that became. That's when X became NC-17. Yeah. What had formerly been an X rating, which, you know, was the death of a film. And that wasn't intended. That, that was just kind of a cultural artifact of X becoming synonymous with pornography. Right. And so. And, the you know, just X, it just seems, it just seems like a scary, it's a scary letter, Ken. To call something an X. It's the scariest letter. It Generation pro- X. It probably has us. superpowers. So X became NC-17, and that kind of became the new R, um, that you had to be 17 or older to The disappearance it. of G is very funny. You know, the idea that broad family movies were G-lasted well into the, you know, the 70s. Is the, there no G left? Nowadays, like, often years will go by without a G coming out. And if it does, it'll just be a nature documentary or something right. like that. It became the kiss of death. Families would not go to G-rated movies because mom and dad would think, this is just Disney kiddie stuff. Yeah, they want a Lego movie where there are a lot of references to the to H.R. Haldeman. <laughs> so, so broad family movies like Star Wars had to be PG or else mom and dad wouldn't come. Right. That's funny. That's interesting. And, and you know, X, um, when, when X was originally uh, part of this 1968 rating system x only was uh only excluded kids under the age of 16 oh interesting so you could be 16 and go to see a an x-rated go movie see midnight cowboy and midnight cowboy was the one that i mean when midnight cowboy came out and it got an x rating and then it won best picture in 1969 um and the fact that it got best picture and it's not particularly graphic in any way besides thematically yeah that's right it's just it's just plot and and characterization and so and the mpa gave it uh just 2 years later revised its rating and then called it an r rated movie without making any edits to the film so x became r and that was true of generation x too became the, generation r they're like they're pirates now r I, you know, thinking back to the idea of what the strictures did for the art, you watch these production code era movies of the 40s and 50s, and they do because of the absence of, you know, you know you're not going to see anything visceral or graphic or, in fact, even, even th- that emotionally visceral or gritty in any way. Um, you know, the movies are going to shield a certain kind of – they're going to project a certain kind of sensibility – it's what people who like those movies probably like about them is they all to this day seem to be taking place in kind of a, some kind of a heightened stylized fictional world um, where again, sex is coded and violence is coded and people act in these heightened ways. 
And, you know, I guess the danger is mistaking that for the past and thinking that you're getting an accurate view into the 40s and 50s. That's the problem. By watching these movies. But I kind of like the idea that you're watching this fantastic era that doesn't really have a lot of relation to how real people or society act and work. It, it You know, in my late lamented podcast, uh, Friendly Fire, we watched a lot of war movies that were made in the 40s and 50s. And then watched a lot of war movies from the 60s, 70s, and 80s and saw uh, as war was depicted both more graphically, more what would have been described as realistically. Although when you see Platoon now and think about what a shocker it was when it came out uh, and now it, it, it's been such an influence that it doesn't, you know, that it's nowhere close to. No, it's, it's, a, it's not really a you are there kind of an experience like – not even like a Saving Private Ryan. It's kind of an odd morality play. Yeah, but the the war movies of the 40s and 50s are, are like you say, kind of an alternate universe, although adultery is implied, and you do, you know, you do see scenes that, that you understand as a there's, sophisticated audience. There's scandal and intrigue, but there's also deniability. But but at the end, you know, the the um the soldier overcomes his PTSD and because, and morally triumphs, you know, there's never a the, situation. The, the ne'er-do-well gets his just desserts, even if that wasn't in the book. That's right. The, the, uh, the soldier that is, um, that's, uh, seditious ends up seeing the, the wrong in his ways and c- gets back in line. And the brass is never criticized, you know, kind of like the clergy couldn't be, you know, right. like, uh, until a, maybe a movie like Paths of Glory or something, there's. Well, yeah. And the uh, chain of command is pretty much inviolate in those movies. Right. And, and Paths of Glory, you know goes back to a time far enough away where, you know, far enough in the, in the past that it doesn't feel contemporary. And, you know, it's not until Patton that you start to see commanding officers presented as full of flaw. Hmm. Um, but yeah, you don't, you don't look, I mean, I watched those movies and it's very easy to decode them and see the art in them. But I think harder to, Harder to overcome the feeling that they represent how the fifties were, and to think about ourselves as being more elev- more enlightened, more free than any generation prior. Somehow morally different from them, right? Whereas in the nineteen twenties, you know, uh, films, even let alone like New York culture, would even by today's standards be pretty raunchy. But I do think the, In a good way. the escapism is still very seductive when you watch these movies. They, yeah. They're kind of the glossy world they take place in. It's it's distinct enough that the stakes all seem very low and, uh, you know. Because you know the heroine's distanced. never going to end up being on heroin. And that concludes The Hayes Code. Entry 572.MT2325, certificate number 29282. In the omnibus. Now, uh, as long as you don't send us the seven words you can't say on television, hmm. you should feel free to find us on social media at The Omnibus Project or at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick. Uh, you can send us your own Screen, screenplays. Yeah. <laughs> that send, we will plagiarize. Send, send us your unproduced <laughs> screenplays to the omnibus project at gmail.com. And we will cut out any unflattering depictions of the clergy. Or of us. Or anytime two people kiss without two feet on the floor. 
Uh, you can find like-minded uh, listeners by looking for the Futurelings on Facebook or Reddit or what have you. You can email. You could actually send us physical items uh, to the Omnibus Project at PO Box five five seven four four. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Um, I don't, because of the snow, I haven't been to the post office lately. I don't know if Will Hayes is still running the joint, but... Um, no, had, Hayes, Hayes died a long time ago. They've had a rough couple of years. The post office? Uh-huh. Yeah, no, he, he left the post office when Harding was still president. That's what that should happen to, what's his name, Louis DeJoy. He should have left the post office before he even got there. Let him move him over to the to Hollywood. Let him uh, oh. <laughs> let him oversee uh, enforce the Trump code. Let, let him oversee some streaming service. Yuck! You could uh, the most important way to support the show. Um, you know, you could tell your friends. You could you could leave a review on the on whatever kind of crystal based uh, media system you have in your era. But you could also support us on Patreon. Um, the show is an independent podcast. We don't need, we don't have big media companies. Not anymore. We don't have a Disney or a. Nope. We're woodshedding. We're not one of those podcasts that's going to become uh, like a gross, subsidized, embedded ad. That's why we can say SOB. Yeah. And tell right. you how to actually make meth and I can crack say, into safes. I can say God <gasps> in a bad way. You can. Oh, uh, God, can. You can uh, make meth and crack into safes. I mean, in fact, if you make the meth first, you'll probably crack into more safes. I feel like we have more than once detailed some criminal behavior that you could have listened to the show and been like, I can do that. We weren't like, most often we weren't describing it for the audience. You were just telling some story. Yeah, that's right. But you and know. And if they're taking, if they're taking notes on your life, they're, they're thinking, <laughs> oh, well, I guess that would work. No, but you could, you know, you've more than once given someone who wanted to be an amateur paleontologist enough information that they could have gone out and started their own unauthorized digs. Oh, I see that. Maybe, uh, we could help, um, imposters get across. Yeah. Uh, well, or just somebody out there, you know, grave robbers, basically. You've <laughs> empowered grave robbers. This whole show is one long grave robbing manual. Um, if you appreciate the grave robbing tips, the desecration tips you've received from me and John, you can go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and become a supporter of the show. You'll feel so good every time you listen, knowing that that you help power the station. That's right. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.